Welcome, everyone, to the Harvard Association for Law and Business podcast. My name is Ramin Shet, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by David Hornick, general partner at August Capital. David, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, David, maybe it'd be helpful to take a step back and talk about how you got into venture capital. You know, you had a pretty interesting academic journey studying computer music at Stanford, pursuing a master's in philosophy and criminology at Cambridge, and eventually a JD at, at Harvard Law. And you also had an interesting early career journey working at three law firms and very different firms at that before getting involved in venture. So to say the least, it wasn't a conventional path. Talk a bit more about your journey, the different types of roles you held and what you got out of them and how this all led to a successful path in venture capital. Sure. I mean, it, it was definitely a convoluted route. Um, I don't think for a second that, uh, because I talked to lots of lots of students who were saying, oh, so do you think this is the, the reasonable path to venture capital? I said, for, for one, there isn't really a path to venture capital. So that's the good news, because that made me perfectly qualified. Uh, but, <laughs> but in every other regard, it was sort of a, a, a rocky path and not necessarily what you would suggest uh, as a as you know as as a way to get to what I think is now the perfect job for me. So I started out. I uh, grew up in New Hampshire. I was a kid who was excited a bunch about a bunch of things, and uh, found my way to Stanford, thinking I was going to be a political science major. But was a musician and loved technology, loved computers, and and it turns out that Stanford has a place called Karma, which is the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, and it's the computer music lab where the Yamaha DX7 was invented, which is the most important synthesizer uh, to ever hip-hop music. And I was completely obsessed with the DX7. I ended up spending time uh, up at Karma, meeting with the guy who invented it, an amazing guy named John Chowning, who ultimately became one of my advisors. And, uh, and I graduated not just with a degree in political science, but also a degree in computer music. And, uh, and that, in fact, qualifies you to do absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, so I continued on my path. Um, I had thought at that point, gee, I'd like to go to, to law school, and in particular, I intended to be a public defender. And so while I, um, while I contemplated that, I hadn't spent any time overseas, and so I got lucky, I landed a fellowship that, that got me to Cambridge, and uh, while I was there, I studied criminology because I thought it would be an interesting path to understand penology and the, the, the sociology of crime, etc., and had an amazing year hanging out in England and and, uh, and spending time in London and spending time in Cambridge uh, University, etc. Uh, and then uh, and then found my way to Harvard Law School, where again I had every expectation that I'd be uh, going into public defense. And as I as I got to law school, I did sort of what I did at Stanford. So while I was at Stanford and doing computer, you know, majoring in computer music and uh, focusing on on, uh, on a range of things, I did the same thing extracurricularly. So ran a speaker's bureau, played bass in the pit orchestra, had a political newspaper, had a humor magazine. You know, there was just a bunch of things that I was doing that were, in the end, just things that I was interested in and that I was excited about and that I met amazing people through that process. So I did the same thing when I got to law school. I started working in the Prison Legal Assistance Project. I was the musical director of the Drama Society. I uh, ended up joining a group called the BSA, the Board of Student Advisors, which taught legal writing and ran the moot court competition, etc. I was an editor of the Journal in Law and Technology, and 
at the end of my time in law school, I thought, okay, I'm going to go take this this uh, this public defending course, and then I'm going to go be a public defender for a semester, which I did. And it was an amazing path, and I had a great time. Uh, I managed to, to represent a lot of different uh, clients. I managed to get them a lot of very good deals uh, for uh, settled settled all but one of the cases. And in that process, I realized that I that I was not a good fit for the job. I think if I were to go to it today, I probably would 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 have been quite excited about the job. But at the time, uh, I wasn't ready to to be quite as selfless as one needs to be to be a public defender. And so um, I moved on from law school. I clerked for a judge on the Second Circuit, and then sort of like, well, now what am I going to do? I was going to be a public defender. I'm not now. So I ended up being a, a commercial litigator at uh, at Cravath Swain and Moore in New York. That gave me exposure to some of the most interesting cases and clients on the planet. I got to work with a guy named Frank Barron, who is one of the finest litigators in the world. It was just an amazing time. But in '97, uh, the internet was uh, was sort of emerging, and uh, Jerry Yang and the early Yahoo team were dorm mates and friends of mine from Stanford. And so I decided I'd move out to the Bay Area and start focusing on uh, on tech. And so I uh, joined a a, a very different firm from Cravat. This was a, a startup law firm called Venture Law Group to represent startups. And all we did was represent do corporate work for for the startup world. Uh, got some very interesting early clients from in, in those early days in 97 and started representing startups and realized, wait a second, startups are amazing. And I had no idea that I was excited about business. I certainly had no idea that I was excited about the startup world. But once I started working with these little these little companies with groups of incredibly engaged evangelical founders, I realized that this is something that that is um, you know that is profound, that makes a difference, that has the opportunity to be uh, to to be a spectacular job. And so, over the next three years, I represented a range of startups and was in lots of board meetings, involved in lots of M and A conversations and fundraisers, etc. And uh, fundraisings, not raisers. <laughs> and um, and I got very lucky. It turns out that I was representing a company called Evite, and uh, and my now firm, August Capital, had invested in the company. There were four partners at the time, and two of them came to the board meetings for Evite. And they got to know me over time, and I was sort of a loudmouth at these board meetings, and I, I expressed a lot of opinions that were, you know, more business than they were law. But but uh, but these two two August Capital partners were at, were at least interested in the things that I had to say. And one day after a board meeting, said, "Hey, have you ever thought about the venture business?" And this is in 2000, when when the venture capital seemed to be the ultimate, the opportunity to work with smart people to think about businesses, et cetera. And so I started this conversation with the August Capital team. Uh, I spent four months interviewing with them, going to meetings and meeting all the partners and dinners and lunches and all sorts of things um, that I now fully understand why, because it turns out that being a, joining a venture firm is like joining a very small boutique. you got to get it right. Um, and luckily, in June of 2000, the partners at August decided to give me a shot as at being a venture capitalist, and uh, they said, you know what, David, lawyers uh, haven't historically been successful at this business, but we like you, and um, and so we so we welcome you into the partnership. And if you succeed, we'll be thrilled. And if not, you're a really good lawyer. You can go back to doing that. And I said, <laughs> Sounds great. And I dove in, and uh, uh, and I guess we know at least sort of the mid 
long-term version of that story because I've been now at August Capital for 17, almost 17 years, uh, invested in a lot of companies, and uh, and I think it probably is a pretty good fit. And at least to date, I have been uh, able to, to make it a profession, so that's been pretty good. Very cool. So talk talk a bit more about August Capital's thesis and, and what the unique value prop of of August Cap is, and especially when you think about, you know, the place of your fund in, in the larger venture landscape. You know, I, I think your fund is, is especially interesting because, like Benchmark, you guys have stayed intentionally lean and, and focused um, uh, and not taking some of the models that some other firms in the Valley are taking. But shed a little bit of light on, you know, maybe that decision as well as how it ties uh, to your fund's thesis and overall value proposition. No, exactly so. I mean, it turns out that, um, there are, a rel- there are a few firms that remain like August boutique firms. We believe that the business of venture capital is a personal business. It is, a, it is in many ways a consulting business. It is our job to help make our companies successful. It's, a, it's our job to you know, interact with really smart and thoughtful people and hopefully uh, convince them to take our money and then, and then uh, engage with them further to try and help make their businesses successful. And as a result of that, it's not really about, uh, we don't have a business thesis. We don't say we're going after this particular kind of business. We don't say that we're going after a particular sector or whatever. What we say is, let's do the hard work to make sure that, uh, that we spend time with the best possible entrepreneurs and, and, uh, and be good members of the larger technology ecosystem so that when someone is working on something that has the potential to be transformative, they want to tell us about it. And then we hope that we have the good sense to notice that they're building something amazing and convince them to take our money, right? And and it turns out each one of those things is hard. It turns out it's really hard to be in the flow of uh, of the conversation and information, et cetera, uh, in, the, in the, the way that will make sure that you get to hear about interesting deals. It's really hard to recognize when something is spectacularly, spectacularly interesting. It's in, in most instances, when you think something is spectacularly interesting, so do other really good firms, and so you then have to convince people that they should take your money over other firms. And then uh, after you do that, then you actually have to go help them build a real business, right? And that and that's challenging as well. So um, I have to say that I think that uh, in many ways, successful venture capital is magic. Successful startup building is magic. Like it's just stunning that these things that you can help little companies become these big and important companies with any kind of consistency, and yet the best venture firms in Silicon Valley and, and, and elsewhere have uh, have managed to do that with some degree of consistency, which is shocking. Yeah, and so that's that's especially interesting because, you know, where do you, you know, they have done it with consistency, and you do hear kind of the blue-chip VC names that have stayed the same over a period of time. and. So where do you, you know, where do you see the landscape of venture going, you know, over the next 10, 15 years? You know, today cash is cheap. Uh, the venture climate has changed relatively uh, tremendously over the past 15 years or so since you've been involved. You know, I think there's a lot of talk out there on, you know, the theory of crowdfunding taking over the space. I don't really ascribe to it primarily because of the difference between plain capital and, and smart advisory capital. But if you dig a layer deeper, there are some interesting shifts going on across stages. You know, seed stage funding is getting more institutional. It's getting more crowded. And it's also seeing new and innovative vehicles, uh, vehicles like Angelist syndicates. Um, it'll be especially actually interesting to see 
what they do next, given their just publicly announced acquisition of Product Hunt. You got some traditional Series A players where new models are emerging. Andreessen's going on with you know, the full-out kind of LA agency-type operating model where you've got marketing folks, sales folks, product folks, et cetera. You have Google Ventures, interesting kind of hybrid corporate venture firm. And then you know, in the late-stage growth equity space, it's getting a lot more involvement from your traditional institutional investors. So how do you see the space panning out? Do we see more specialized firms, more stage agnostic firms, or... Uh, or maybe my framing of the question is wrong and we actually don't see any change at all. <laughs> no, I mean, I think people think there's a lot of change going on, but I think that everything, you know, everything that is old is new again. And, you know, we've seen multiples of these of these uh, models in the past and they've come and they've gone and they've come back again. Um, you know, the biggest and most dramatic shift I do think has been in the seed stage world where historically Angel... Angel financings have come from individuals, literal angels. You know, it used to be doctors and lawyers. And now it's uh, now it's something. You know, then then it was founders of companies who've been successful, and then you know some of those founders realized, wait a second, there's an opportunity to build an institutional fund here. You know, Josh Koppelman started out before first round capital as a very successful founder who then wanted to get engaged with. With you know, with other founders and help them build businesses, and he quickly decided that he needed to have additional leverage to to be successful at that, or maybe not to be successful, but to have an impact at scale. And so, first round capital was born, and that was, and and a number of those early early seed funds were were born, and that has been that's been pretty dramatic, right? Because suddenly there are lots and lots of seed funders who are who are investing out of funds, that means they have greater resources. It means that they become more competitive, but more companies will get funded. You know, things like Y Combinator and Techstars that are really scaling the business of, of um, incubating companies. So the byproduct is lots and lots and lots of startups. Now, the interesting question is, will that increase the number of successful startups, right? Will we have a larger number of ultimately successful and, uh, you know, large-scale businesses emerging as a result of these things? And so far, the answer has not really been yes, right? So far, we've had a few very interesting, successful companies come out of each uh, out of each decade over the last few. Yep. And, uh, and, and we're poised to see that again, right? So... We're poised to see Uber and Airbnb in particular uh, emerge as wildly successful startups to, 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 I believe, ultimately become public companies. And I think that they will have long-term businesses, and I think those businesses will sustain in the same way that prior to that we had Facebook and Google, and prior to that we had eBay and Amazon. And so those businesses are amazing. And, and look, it is important to note Airbnb is coming out of Y Combinator, and so would it have existed prior to without a Y Combinator? Maybe, maybe not. But by having a lot of resources at these early stages gives lots and lots of entrepreneurs the capacity to start businesses. From a Series A kind of investor standpoint, I don't think a lot has changed. Like there are bigger funds, there are more dollars in some regards out of those funds, but I tend to compete with the same group of, call it 15 or 20 funds, uh, that for the for the investments that I and my firm want to make. And so, um, so it suggests that people do appreciate the value of, of, you know, call it smart money or whatever you want. A set of us who who have history and experience in helping to to to, to give the entrepreneurs the resources they need to build big businesses, and 
yeah, that's exciting for the startups. It's exciting for those of us who are involved, but it doesn't suggest the market's changing that dramatically. So, um, uh, you know, I, I remain quite enthusiastic that ultimately people, you know, great entrepreneurs are looking for the support of investors who have, on the one hand, seen what it looks like to, to build and scale a successful business. On the other hand, are there and available to, to give them the capital and the resources they need to, to, to do that on their own. And I, I think there will always be those businesses out there and ready for people like me and others who, who's, whose job it is to help, help them uh, be successful. Yeah, I think the point you make around that actually of not a lot changing is is really interesting, especially because the the examples you mentioned there, Uber and Airbnb, are getting founded at you know the deepest lows of of the recession, right? And so it, it adds a little bit more actually evidence to the fact that you know this is an industry in which historically the same number of relevant companies are produced annually, um, and so it's questionable as to whether more cash um, you know accelerates um, the additional relevant businesses that are out there. or or not, and I, I think it does have an interesting effect at the seed stage level of some of the saturation um, of capital in the space and the effect that has on valuations in the tech industry. So I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure we could have another you know hour or probably even day conversation about. Um, it's the bubble question, and you know the environment's getting frothy, right? And you know there's some interesting underlying mechanics that actually point to the opposite of a bubble, right? You could make the argument um, we're in a tech bus. PE multiples are low, cash balances are high, and There'll be something to the tune of a trillion in buybacks and dividends just across the Fortune 500, which is you know 20-fold of all of private tech investing. So the way that you know I think about it is it, it boils down to a fundamental concept, which is if you believe right now is you know the best time to be an entrepreneur and the generational companies are getting built right now as opposed to companies that you know would create value if they timed the markets correctly via favorable IPO or, or MA is Many of those businesses in the late, you know, in the late '90s, early 2000s, were trying to get built. You know, it's it's if you do believe in that concept that it's the generational companies that are getting built, it's it's kind of hard to see how the bubble question is even relevant, right? It, even if it is a bubble, ostensibly the value that's created is just going to be so large that it doesn't really matter. So, you know, maybe not the day long or, or the you know the week long conversation. I'm sure you and your partners have, but what do you kind of think of you know valuations and and the overall kind of thought of, of where we are in, in the landscape today? Well, I th- you know, look, the, the, the bubble conversation is sort of born out of the bubble of, of 2000, right, where yeah. uh, the internet emerged, there were a whole bunch of new businesses that were happening, uh, they were getting valued at, at you know, evaluations that today would look quite slim, <laughs> but they were being valued highly, they were raising lots of money, they, and, and most importantly, they were going public quickly. So there were a lot of companies that had not very clear business models, not necessarily sustainable business models, and um, and they were and they were getting public and they were being valued highly, um, and then it turned out that gee those business models didn't necessarily work. People had made a bunch of choices that um, you know they made a bunch of assumptions that weren't necessarily proving themselves out, and uh, and the bubble burst and basically the public markets dropped dramatically and a lot of people lost a lot of money. But what happened in those instances is that a bunch of consumer investors, a bunch of retail investors like you and me, had invested in our 401ks and in our, you know, personal money. And when when those companies went bust, it had a huge impact. You know, people lost millions and millions of dollars of of their own personal money in ways that that felt incredibly painful. 
um, and was incredibly painful. I'm not suggesting for a second it wasn't. That is not what we're experiencing right now. It's incredibly hard to take a company public. There not a lot. There isn't a lot of people uh, of, of appetite for um, for suspending disbelief on these models, etc. And so, as a result, um, there's not really a public market bubble. There's this private market bubble. And my feeling about private market bubble, bubbles is that it's not really a bubble. It's a bunch of professional investors who are making choices about what they think the long-term value of an asset is. And if it turns out that works or doesn't work. Um, you know, it, it was their job to be to be well hedged and to understand the market, et cetera. And so there won't no one failing in that world is gonna have a big impact on the average uh, retail consumer. Um, and so I don't think that we'll feel the kind of pain that they that people felt and I don't think that they'll be the kind of horror that we felt. I think it's just a different world. Um, now, do I think that things were overheated and overfunded and all sorts of things like that? Yes. And I think that the biggest problem that we have and a big mistake that's being made, and I think that uh, I think that the pendulum will swing, swing back again, is this idea that, hey, you don't need to go public, right? That yep. big private companies make perfect sense and we'll just raise another, you know, we'll raise a billion dollars in private equity financing and it's all good. The only problem with that is you cannot be pu- private forever. That's exactly. just not... These businesses are not going to get the sufficient liquidity that they're going to be able to pay dividends that make people happy, etc. And, and so everybody who's investing in this company ultimately expects it to be a, a, a liquid asset. And th- that's either going to happen because the company is acquired or it's going to happen because it goes public. It's not going to get acquired at $20 billion, at $20 billion valuation in all likelihood, right? There are well, it's like who's going to buy three it, companies right? that could do it, right? Exactly. And, and so how many of these companies are going to get bought for $5 billion, $10 billion, $20 billion? So the only way that they can manage to make those valuations make sense is to get public. And, uh, and the longer you put it off and the more money you take at the higher price, the higher that valuation has to be, right? And so even though ultimately Facebook managed its way out of this mess, you know, you may recall that when they went public, they went public at a hundred billion dollar valuation because they had set themselves up to need to. Yep. They had taken money at such crazy prices that they had to, and it, and the, and they traded down to something like sixty billion, and people felt bad about it. And then there were bought, a bunch of people sold off, and they lost money. Some new people bought in, and now, now obviously in the long term that that's inconsequential because the company's trading at multiples of that. But at the time, it was a pretty bad process. And if they had instead not waited so long, not taken so much money, gone public at a $50, $60 billion valuation, would very rapidly have traded up to $100 billion, and everybody would have felt great about it. Now, I'm listening to all the people saying, oh, yeah, but there was – it got more money into the pockets of the company, blah, blah, blah. That may be true, but it, it was not a smooth process. And the next one to do it may trade down forever, right? Zynga yep. and others that, but you know, Groupon, et cetera, that, that weren't able to survive that, that craziness. So, so it's not a per- we're not in a perfect world, but I don't think there's some life-threatening bubble sitting out there. I just think that people are making choices that don't make a lot of sense from a long-term liquidity standpoint. Interesting. I'd like to actually take that you know opportunity and transition into some career-oriented questions and, and get your perspective on leading a successful career. So you know, as a first question, you've gotten to know a lot of great people in the industry over your career. You know, you mentioned being in the same freshman dorm as, as Jerry Yang and the Yahoo guys. Um, and I've read up about the lobby conference that you came up with and you host, and 
been really cool to see that over the years you've had you know great folks like Travis Kalanick of Uber, Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn, Paul Graham of YC, and and others. You know, who over the course of your career has been the most impressive person you've interacted with, and and more importantly, what are the set of characteristics about them that impressed you? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had the incredible luck and fortune to interact with a ton of really amazing people, right? Amazing founders, amazing, amazing CEOs, etc. And you, you know, you've listed some of them, folks. You know, that very this conference that you described, the lobby conference, was this gathering of of smart, interesting people in tech. Um, and the, and this past year was our tenth anniversary. So ten years ago, we had we had the first one, and that that covered. As you say, we're we're the early versions of people who end up doing amazing things. People yeah. like like Reed Hoffman, like uh, you know Tony Shea from Zappos, and uh, and um, Dick Costello, uh, you know Travis and Carrot, the founders of uh, of Uber, met at the lobby conference, which is an amazing uh, amazing thing. So my criteria basically was find art interested interesting people who are truly intellectually. Uh, curious, but more importantly, are generous of spirit. Find people who, uh, you know, who care about the broader community and want to make others successful along with them, right? Yep. Um, I, I have very little respect for people who have been wildly successful at the expense of others. I don't think that, uh, and there have been plenty of them, and I'm not suggesting it's not a way to be successful. You can be successful by being uh, someone who takes advantage of other people. Um, but I do not have – I have no regard for those people. I think, I think that that is a, a failed model. It makes the world a less good place. Uh, and even if you ultimately get rich in the process, uh, you know, you've, you've, lived a, you've lived an uh, unsatisfying life. Um, and so my goal was with the lobby and with, my, with the companies in which I invest and with my life in general is to, to surround myself by pe- with people who um, – you know, whose goal it is to make is to make uh, other people successful, and to uh, and to make the world a better place than the one that they came to, etc. So, you know, great example of that is this guy DJ Patil. DJ, when I met him, he was the chief data scientist of eBay. This is now ten years or so ago. Just a wonderfully charming, thoughtful guy. And the thing that's interesting about DJ, here's a guy who is a data scientist. He's a mathematician, and yet he's a, he is dyslexic. He had uh, essentially failed out of school. He had to kind of scrape his way back into, into college and ultimately landed in a graduate program where he, was, where he found his calling. And, um, and he's a spectacularly smart guy, ultimately ended up at, at working in the uh, government, helping to model weather patterns, etc. Found his way to eBay, and from eBay he went to uh, to LinkedIn. He was the chief data scientist at LinkedIn and did some great stuff there. Uh, he m- moved on to a company called Relate IQ, which Salesforce bought, etc. He is the night, but most importantly, and, and, oh, and I should say that he is now the chief data scientist of the U.S. government. So he works for Obama now. He has worked, and 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 the primary characteristic of DJ, other than the fact that he has been wildly successful and he has and he is a brilliant, brilliant individual, is that he is the most wonderfully charming, nice human you'll ever meet. And he will go out of his way to help people, and he will go out of his way to to um, to, to work with others to make them successful, not to make himself successful. And as a result of that, he is 
you know, he is the paradigm of the kind of entrepreneur you want to work with. And and, and look, many of the people I've just listed, you know, if you spend any time with a Dick Costello, then you realize what incredibly thoughtful, smart, uh, you know, wonderful guy he is. So I'm, I'm, you know, so I, it's those sorts of people who I want to, you know, I want to help. I want to be successful. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, actually. And I, I think, you know, Adam Grant has a really cool account of you. I was reading his book, Give and Take, on, on the idea of giving in your career and creating value for others. And my two cents on the topic are, I think the more you can serve as a conduit to others and put others in a position to succeed, not only are you just happier as a person, which in and of itself is worth it, but even the more outsized benefit you put yourself in a position to potentially take advantage of. And I think the interesting thing when applied to young people and people that are starting out in their careers is I think a lot of young folks actually systematically give themselves less credit than they deserve. And I think, you know, the idea of pursuing and building relationships with interesting people, um, you often put yourself actually in a position where you have a lot to give. And and by getting yourself out there, you can not only learn from other folks, but you can actually put yourself in a position to provide that kind of value. So, you know, that that concept of actually giving and, and being a good person resonates really deeply. Um, and so, you know, on that note, switching gears slightly, you know, an interesting conversation or topic these days is, you know, pursuing your passion and, and doing what you love uh, versus this notion, right, of just building skills, right? And, and whether those are hard skills or soft skills. So how do you think of, you know, balancing that age old idea of doing what you love and following your passion with, with building skills? You know, another way to frame the question is founding a startup or joining a startup very early in your career versus going into the more established trajectories, either services side, um, you know, like a management consulting firm, an investment bank, uh, you know, these days more popularly, the large established technology companies like a Google, a Facebook, et cetera, to, to build skills. And I, I think that decision is actually really important given how much of an inflection point moves you make earlier in your career can become, you know, the people that uh, you actually meet, the network you develop, the success stories that you're in a position to be a part of. Um, and I think compounding effects in careers are real. And so thinking through those steps, you know, with some sort of intent um, can, can benefit you. So how do you, you know, how do you think through that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of problem or challenge that folks face today? Well, I guess what I'd say is, first of all, you know, in the end, the question is, are you happy? That's what, that, I think the people under, under examine that question. They're trying to figure out how to build a quote-unquote successful career when what they should be trying to figure out is how to build a happy life. Mm-hmm. And so what are the things that will, you know, so what are the things that will make you happy, right? Not what will think, what are the skills that will make you successful? Now, maybe success is what will make you happy, but maybe not, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of very unhappy engineers right now because they are, because they have been so good at being engineers that now they get to be managers. And they don't, they wanted to be engineers because they wanted to engineer, not because they wanted to manage people. And therefore, by being successful and succeeding, uh, they, they, they ended up in a job they didn't want. And, uh, and so I guess in the end, what I would say is the, the most important thing is to find the thing, you know, find the people who, with whom you want to work doing, doing things that make you happy and satisfied and, uh, and historically what I've seen is that those things will make, and if you then throw your, give it your all, I think you will find yourself in a position to be successful, um, in, in a bro- in the broader sense, right? But it, but trying to, uh, 
architect the path to this to a quote unquote successful life or a successful career is a is an absolute path to disaster. It is not a good and and, and in part it's because you just have no idea at the end of the day which of these things is going to be successful, right? I mean, everybody who was in that first hundred employees at Facebook was wildly successful, and then they were able to parlay that into other jobs and other opportunities, whatever. Um, but but they could just as easily have been the first hundred employees in Fab, which looked like it was going to be that kind of successful, astonishing out uh, you know outcome, and it ended up going out of business. And so. Were they any less successful? Did they do any 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 fewer things to be to lead a uh, successful career or whatever? You know, maybe not. They just picked wrong. But was that? But but is that really a measure of the people? And is it really the measure of a successful path to a to a you know to a satisfying career? So, I guess I'd say there's so much uncertainty in all of it that. First, find the thing that you enjoy. If you enjoy consulting, then go be a consultant. If you enjoy building, go be an engineer. If you enjoy managing, you know, go figure out how to be a product manager, etc. Um, and then the second thing is go find the people with whom you have the greatest affinity. Go find the people you want to work with. Because guess what? You're going to spend a lot of hours with those people. So find an amazing group of people uh, with whom you want to spend time because those are the people who are, who are going to make you happy and satisfied. And, and by the way, they also are probably the people who will then make you successful. So um, I, I, I would uh, I would say don't overthink it. I would say you know make make the find the place that makes you the happiest and stay there until you either are unhappy or you find a place that will make you happier. And that's been my entire career. I've never been in a place I was unhappy, but I have always found places that would make me happier. And in every instance, I've taken the risk to go join that group of people to go do that particular thing. And that's been, uh, you know, at least for, for the first 48 years of my life, that's been a pretty good, uh, pretty good model. Yeah. And so as, you know, as a final question, I was actually going to ask, you know, what your best advice for young folks, if you had to give an elevator pitch for people in the workforce, young folks in the workforce these days would be, and it sounds like it's over-optimized for people, people, and people. My only, I got very lucky. It took, I had lots and lots of things that I was excited about and interested in over time. And so first of all, that's lucky. Like it turns out that sometimes it takes a long people, a long time for people to find the things that are exciting to them or interesting to them. So step one is be open-minded and be, and be intellectually curious if, and find those things that, that are exciting to you. Um, and then when you've gotten there, then go find other people that you're really excited about who are engaged and excited about that same, that same area, whatever it is. Maybe it's archaeology, maybe it's architecture, maybe it's, you know, you know, finance, whatever it is, and uh, and I think if you can find that passion and you can find those people, then you will have a satisfying life. And then the last piece that I, you know is work hard. Like you know, <laughs> it turns out that I've worked really hard for lots and lots of years. I haven't done it because I, you know, I've done it because I've been engaged and excited, and I wanted to to uh, I wanted the people around me to feel like I was pulling my weight. And uh, I do that today, right? I mean, I work with lots and lots of entrepreneurs, and when they call me, I, I try and answer the phone, and when they ask me for help, I try and give them help, and I try and, and, and I work hard because I think I owe it to them. Um, and it makes me happy. 
And so find the thing that will that will define the thing where when you are working hard, it is actually making you happier, not less happy. Because if you're in a job that uh, where spending more time is making you less happy, then you're probably in the wrong job. Well, David, you know, this is this has been an incredibly insightful conversation. And, you know, once again, you know, really appreciate someone like yourself in a, in a position like yourself takes takes the time to talk with folks like us, um, you know, to share so many great lessons and key learnings from your successful career. But, you know, from our conversation, what sounds more important and, and has been kind of more gratifying is, is what sounds to be a happy life. Um, so thanks so much for taking the time. It's been great. Yeah, thanks so much for the questions. To our listeners, tune in next time to the Harvard Association for Law and Business podcast as we continue to connect with business luminaries and discuss their career retrospectives.